We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today, Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at the story that runs from verse 2 all the way to 29. But we're going to focus primarily on verse 29. And to help kind of prepare us to get us into the text, uh, Margaret, bring up this first picture. So this first picture is a picture that I would keep on my desk, and every Saturday for seven years when I was preparing to preach, I would lay out my sermon manuscript, and this would be the image that would motivate me to get my heart right for preaching. So, who this is? This is uh, our Yellow Lab Brighton. So, before Cynthia and I had human children, we had a canine child. It was Brighton. He was our dog for 10 years. And... Um, I would keep this picture there. Now, I want you to think, like, why? <laughs> How is that supposed to help me? And uh, kids, you can actually enter into this maybe a little easier than parents. You know that having a pet is a lot of work. So, for example, many people got pets over um, over the COVID and uh, the, the lockdown and found out it's a lot of work. Uh, we actually got a dog uh, this past year, and one of our girls was lamenting um, this past week that maybe we should have got, gotten a cat because cats don't chew up Barbie dolls, which I think is true. Um, so let's imagine you had a pet dog, and you started to realize that this dog is really a lot of work. I mean, they're big, and they're messy, and they take a lot of food, and they chew up your toys and your shoes. And so you thought, man, I really wish we had a bunny instead. Bunnies are so much easier. They don't make nearly the same amount of mess. And you only think that because you've never had one. And so, I w so what would it actually take if, you want, if we wanted to turn Brighton into a bunny? Like, what would we need to do? Maybe if we fed him carrots for a month, would that turn him into a bunny? Or maybe we hot glued uh, cotton balls on his tail, would that turn him into a bunny? Here, Cynthia, Cynthia, this is a photo op where she is celebrating, Cynthia is celebrating Easter and putting the bunny ears on each. So putting bunny ears on Brighton, does that turn him into a bunny? Or maybe we need a magical incantation where we have a magic wand and, you know, Abra Kabubu, I turn you into little bunny foo-foo. You know, would that work? Like, what does it require? And then how does that help me preach? <laughs> the reason why I would keep that picture there to prepare me for Sunday is because what I actually wanted to remind myself of is that what we're doing on Sunday, that if you're a Christian, what you've experienced and what we want to see people experience is a transformation that's actually more mysterious, more magical, more transformative than if you could turn Brighton into a bunny. So the transformation that happens when dead sinners become alive and they're born again and they're made new, that miraculous transformation where the proud become humble, where, where the hurting are healed, where the spiritually dead are raised to new life is more miraculous. It's more amazing than if we could turn Brighton into a bunny. So every Saturday I would pray, Lord, let, help us see that on Sunday morning. Let us see the transformation. And so it's worth just pausing and realize, do you know that if you're a Christian, like what's happened to you is more glorious than if we could turn Brighton into a bunny. So how can we do this? How can we experience this in our church and in our life? So what we're going to do this month and uh, last couple years in August, it's just kind of happened that we've oriented ourselves and focused on prayer. So before we move back into our normal movement through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to spend this month talking about prayer. And one of my favorite texts, just to, to reorient me to kind of who we are and what we're trying to do, comes from Mark chapter 9. 
So let's pick up the story here in verse 2. So after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain. And Luke adds in, he took them up there to pray. So this is an act of prayer where they're going to come into the presence of the living Lord. He took them by themselves to be alone, and he was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he said this because he didn't know what to say, since they were all terrified. And a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And they kept this word to themselves, questioning, what does rising from the dead mean? Then they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Elijah does come first and restore all things, he replied. Why then it is written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. And when they had come down the mountain, they came to the other disciples. And now what I really want you to do is trying to enter into the different emotional experience of the characters in the story. So what would it feel like to be the disciples and to be publicly engaging in the dispute when you've just experienced this failure that's so open and obvious? What would it be like to be the father so desperate to have his son helped but not seeing any results? What does it feel like to be Jesus, to see your disciples failing and struggling so publicly? When they came down from the mountain and came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd with them and the scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and they ran to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive it out. But they couldn't. And he replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. And he fell to the ground and he rolled around foaming at his mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked. From childhood, the father said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. And the boy became like a corpse. So that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. And after they had all gone into the house, his disciples asked him in private, why could we not drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Then some manuscripts add fasting. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And what I want us to do this morning is just focus on that last line. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And we have three points. We'll focus on this kind, nothing but 
prayer. And I think this passage just perfectly illustrates in many ways where the church kind of as a whole in general finds itself today, where so many Christians find themselves today. You find themselves in a in the sense of this uh, obvious kind of public spectacle of failure that has become public and obvious and the discouragement, disappointment that goes along with us. And that question You feel the disappointment, the frustration, the embarrassment. Why couldn't we drive him out? Why did we fail? Why couldn't we cast the demon out? I think it's a beautiful story and kind of unpack and learn so many things from them. So first, let's think about this kind. This kind. What Jesus is going to tell them, the reason why you failed is because you don't recognize this kind. And it's the necessity of the proper diagnosis. You know, there's so many things where the first thing you have to learn is how to differentiate between case by case. This kind, you know, why did they fail here? Why why couldn't they drive the demon out? You know, it's interesting. They'd had success before. We've already seen them in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the 12, and they had tremendous success. And Jesus even says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, and they came back. You wouldn't believe the things that we we could do. And possibly, timeline's a little iffy, but it's possible that he's already sent out the 72, and they've had tremendous success. So the disciples, they've had success doing this kind of thing before, but they fail here. And it's interesting to think, why? And of course, at this point, one of the problems is that Jesus has been away from them. So he's been away. And then the father brings the boy, brings him. It's interesting. He says, I brought them to you when he's talking to Jesus. But he brings the boy to the disciples. And there's three that are gone. So the nine are still there. And one by one, they try to cast out the demon and they all fail. And if you've been around any man for any length of time, you can imagine how this scene would go. They, the father brings the boy to the first one. We don't know who. Peter's gone, so he wasn't the first to just step up to the plate. Not sure who was the first one. Maybe it was Matthew. Say, oh, come, all right, come on, bring me here. <sighs> I got it. Come on. Okay, what's the problem? I right, got it. Nothing. And then what does Thomas say? Well, of course you can't do it. Get, move out of the way. Let me show you how it's done. Amateur. Rookie. And you can probably see the, the collection of one after another. They each try, and then they all fail. And the interesting is why? You know, why? Because they've done this before. They have power. But there's something about this kind. And I just wonder if they all rushed into action before adequately taking in the real situation. You can kind of see this, you know, an illustration like uh, Nathan, one of our wonderful med students who's outside teaching the four and five year old class. So bless him, special blessing on Nathan. And uh, let's imagine that afterwards, Nathan and I are kind of walking around and we walk it and there's there's a dog just laying, just laying there in the grass. And we look at each other and Nathan says, well, you need to do something. You're a doctor. And I say, well, I'm not that kind of doctor. You're training to be a doctor. He said, well, I'm not training to be that kind of doctor, but we got to do something. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we need to do, I guess, is determine, all right, well, why is the dog laying there? So is the dog asleep? And we just need to wake it up? I mean, it's August. It's a thousand degrees outside. Maybe it's heat stroke. So does he just need water? Maybe he's been bitten by a snake. He's poisoned. See, the accurate diagnosis determines the response. And you can look at Christians in general, you look at the church in general, and you think, all right, what is this kind that we're facing? I mean, is the problem that in general we're just asleep and need to be roused 
Or is it that heat stroke and exhausted and need the life-giving, refreshing water to flow from the Holy Spirit? Or have we been snake bit by some type of satanic poison that's cursing through the veins of the body of Christ that's polluting and poisoning it? You know, what's the situation? What's the diagnosis here? And I think that's so important for us to look, all right, what is this kind that we face? See, the disciples had power, but not enough for this situation. One thing they have to learn is actually in this case, the demon is in too deep. And the things that they had relied on in the past were not going to solve this problem. They didn't understand what this kind was. And it's interesting to think about, all right, kind of post as we sit at this point, August 2021, what is this kind that we face? What does the church face now? You think as Christians in general are seen as marginal at best, socially destructive at worst. You look out in the deep isolation that people feel, the uh, overwhelming ambient anxiety that everybody lives in, the rise of deaths of despair, the relational breakdown that you can see in so many places, the fact that so many people are captured by toxic and destructive ideologies that poison the way they see others. What is this kind that we're actually facing? Or you think not just kind of church in general, but you in particular, what is this kind that you face right now? You know, somebody, um, they were definitely barking up the wrong tree because they came to me about a week ago when we were asking for parenting advice. It's like, well, you're, you're raising four kids and they seem to be happy. How do you do this? <laughs> no, I'll see if we can find somebody to talk to. But one of the things we kind of joked about is because they're like, well, we've entered this new stage with this and we feel so unprepared. And we start laughing because it's like, well, give it like every stage you're unprepared for. So no, yes, you were unprepared for one child, then you have two and you're unprepared for that. Then you have three and you're unprepared for that. Then you have four and you're unprepared for that. And then you're unprepared for having to raise two pre-teenagers with two toddlers. You're unprepared for that. Then they become teenagers. You're definitely unprepared for that. There's actually never a moment in the entire journey that you're ever prepared. So, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for the help. <laughs> the great help. You know, we're always unprepared. And you have to ask, right, what is this kind that I'm actually facing today? The things that I've done in the past just aren't going to be able to help or get me there. What are you facing right now? And, you, and then the next thing I want you to see is, you know, this kind can come out by nothing but. There's nothing but. You know, it's so easy to start spinning solutions and strategies and things. This is, nope, there's only one thing. See, for this boy's case, the demon's in too deep. And the only way to cast it out is nothing but this. See, one of the sad but true things is they had to experience, in one sense, the beautiful breaking of their own failure. And it had to be obvious and it had to be public. They had to see that the power, the resources they had that were just not adequate to meet this reality. And one thing is there's nothing better for ministers to experience their own weakness, their own weakness. The things that they were relying on had proved to be fruitless. The power they had was good. The knowledge they had was good. It just wasn't enough. And they had to experience that breaking and it's only when you become aware of your need, that breaking, that really, truly humbles you. 
You know, Charles Spurgeon said, you can either be humbled or be humble, but you can't be both. You have to be one or the other. You will either be humbled or you can be humble. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I did my dissertation on, a British pastor who uh, trained as a medical doctor and left medicine uh, to become a, first a pastor in rural Wales and then in downtown London. And, you know, he started med school in 1914 at the age of 14 uh, and was able to get in because World War I had just started and there was a shortage of, of men. But at that time, he trained under Lord Horder, who was the most famous physician in the British Isles. And it, this was kind of a day, you've always had like the paparazzi and TMZ type people. And the paparazzi in that time used to follow Lord Horder around and like write in the morning, you know, the, the two papers, the dailies, the morning and the evening, and they would write in the paper about who Lord Horder is visiting. What does this mean that he's, you know, making a house call on the Countess of Buckingham has, you know, what's going on? And uh, so Lloyd-Jones trained under him. And uh, when he left medicine to become a preacher in rural Wales, it caused quite a uh, a public kind of media uh, frenzy. And so he gained a lot of notoriety, which he absolutely abhorred. Um, and one time he was actually traveling on a train and he was preaching and a lot of people were coming and just his early sermons are just filled with energy and life and uh, this dynam- dynamic preaching. But uh, he was sitting on a train and there were four Welsh pastors in the seats behind him. They didn't know he was there, couldn't see him. And uh, he didn't know if they were talking about him, but he heard them. They were talking about this young preacher that had come out of nowhere and was kind of taking whales by storm. And people were coming together and listening to him and he was, you know, this incredible ministry and, a, and uh, he was sitting there listening and then in this deep kind of Welsh accent, one of the preachers said, I, but I don't think he's been humbled yet. And then the other three preachers went, oh no, oh. And then sitting there, Lloyd just didn't know if they were talking about him or not specifically, but he knew they were talking about him and he knew he hadn't been humbled yet. And there in that train car, he asked, Lord, help me, humble me, humble me before it happens. And, you know, there's just something we have to learn. This kind is nothing but. There's only one solution that can, is adequate for the type of real transformation that we want to see and experience. And it comes about by nothing but prayer, nothing but prayer. And so this whole month, this is what I kind of want to dwell on and unpack and live in. What does Jesus mean that nothing, that this kind can come out by nothing but prayer? Why prayer? And one thing for this case, for this kind that they're facing, this boy, his problem, his scenario, his situation. And you can just imagine what it'd be like for the father to feel so much anxiety, so much desperation, and then have that flash of hope. And then to bring the boy to the disciples, hoping that they can help him and then not being able to. And in one sense, the demons end so deep in the boy. The reason why this kind can only come out by prayer, because if the demon is in too deep out there, the only way to combat that is to get the gospel in deeper in here. We have to drill it down. And that's what prayer does. It drills the gospel down. It's in too deep out there. The only way we can combat it is to get the gospel deeper in here. And it's prevailing prayers, the pathway. In one sense, the key really is found in verse 19. You know, this really strikes me as such an interesting phrase. You can just feel the, the frustration of Jesus. And, you know, one thing, you, all of you know that so much of communication is nonverbal. So, like, 
There's a huge difference between if you ask your wife how she is and she says, I'm fine, versus I'm fine. You know, those are two very different um, responses. So the nonverbal can tell you so much. And you just, I would, what was the nonverbal of verse 19? When Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Just wonder, is it the sense of frustration? Even in my sermon outline, what I've, I've always said that Jesus allowed them to fail so they could be broken because that's what they needed. But here I wonder, I mean, he, he seems really frustrated and disappointed and discouraged that they're failing. They're not accomplishing what he's empowered them to do. But he says, how long? And then he says, bring the boy to me. And of course, that's the ultimate solution. That's the ultimate thing that the boy needs. Bring him to me. So whatever it is, this kind that we face, whether it's kind of globally, nationally, relationally, personally, the solution is bring him to me. You know, when the father can say, look, I brought him to your disciples, but they failed. He says, no, don't bring them to them. Bring them to me. So what are you facing this morning? What are we facing? You know, the transformation that we want to see is more amazing, more transformative than if we turn Brighton into a bunny. I mean, if you are facing situations where you need to transform hard hearts and make them soft or broken hearts and make them whole or broken relationships and make them restored, you know, there might be relational situations that you see are so broken that to turn that from what it is now to be healthy and whole would be more of a transition than turning a dog into a bunny. How is it going to happen? You have to bring it to him. And it doesn't mean it'll be easy. You can go back two weeks and Rob preached a wonderful message on relational forgiveness. And what does it mean to forgive? And it can be very hard, but that's the pathway. Broken relationships reconcile. So what does it mean to create a place where the the homeless can have a home or the aimless can have direction or the helpless can have strength? That's the type of transformation that we want to see where the old is gone and the new comes and whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and this only happens through prayer. So this month, that's what we want to commit to. How can we reorient ourselves as a church and commit to that? How can we reorient ourselves as individuals and commit to that? But each week we celebrate the Lord's table and we come into his presence. And one of the things is we get to take part in one of those amazing, miraculous transformations where a little bitty, tasteless, air-dried wafer... (laughs) can become the symbol and the representation to us of his incredible, his brokenness and our wholeness. See, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body and it was broken so that you can be made whole. So think about in any area of your life where there's actual, real, tangible, significant brokenness, what is it going to take to make it whole again? What it takes is what this bread represents, bringing it to him and his broken body, healing. And then on the night he was betrayed, he took the the cup and he poured in the wine and he said, this wine represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. So it marks the forgiveness of sins to come into his presence, spilled for us. So he lost his, in essence, his blood was poured out so we could be made new. So take and remember.
So we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the reality of your power that all of us desire to experience in some way. So we commit to you, your church in our country, our community, and our world that faces such tremendous challenges and difficulties. And in so many ways, um, this past year has revealed to us just how shallow we can be, how snarky we can be, how easily influenced by every wind and wave we can be. So we ask for a miracle. We ask that you help us to know what is this kind that we're facing. And we ask that you help us to drive in the truth of your, uh, your word and your gospel in down deep to be able to combat how deep the demon is out in the world. And Lord, we pray for everyone who has different situations where maybe something new has happening and they found themselves in a situation that they don't understand or feel unprepared for and can't handle. We pray that as they look at this, this kind, this new reality, this new normal, that you would provide whatever they need to experience the power of your transformation. We pray that we would see, see miracles, that we would see walking miracles of the old gone and the, and the new come. We pray for Ted and Tiziana. We pray for all those that we know right now who are battling uh, unexpected sickness. We pray that you would uh, heal their body. We pray that you would encourage uh, the discouraged spirits and we lift them up to you. We lift up to you, everyone. who will be starting new seasons of life in the next couple of weeks, whether new school year, new job, new situations. We lift them up to you now and we thank you for the privilege and the power to call upon your name. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.